Hi folks, this is Shaq Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September the 3rd, 2014, and this is episode 1418 of the Survival Podcast. This is a different episode than uh, is typical. Uh, no guns, no gardens. We're going to talk today about a better way to make a living, how to find the right career or business for yourself, and... Uh, I'll have some words in a bit on why that is definitely a preparedness topic. Before I do that, though, let's take care of our housekeeping. Sponsor of the day number one today is Backwoods Home Magazine. Best endorsement that I can give to any sponsor is the endorsement that I can give to Backwoods Home Magazine, because it's all true. And that is I subscribed to Backwoods Home Magazine first time in 1994. It's 2014. That's 20 years of me doing business with them, and I'm still a subscriber. And even when I brought them on as a, as a, a sponsor, I never even asked them, hey, could you comp my subscription? And I probably could ask Dave Duffy that. He would have done it in about a half a second. But no, I've remained a loyal subscriber. I generally don't take sponsors uh, for this show unless I would spend my money with them. And I've been happy to do that with Backwoods Home for 20 years. Become a subscriber today, and you'll see why. Next today, Sawtooth Tactical. I'll tell you what I like to do when it comes to dealing with companies. I like to deal with companies that sell the stuff I want. Sawtooth has all the tactical stuff that I want. The next thing is I like to deal with companies that are based here in America. They're based in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho. And next, when I can, I like to do business with a brother prior service soldier, such as myself. And Sawtooth is a veteran-owned, veteran-operated company. It's pretty much a trifecta home run. Check out Sawtooth Tactical today at sawtac.com. You can find all the cool tactical stuff there to meet your needs. Next up, remember the way I pay the bills around here really is with the Member Support Brigade. Become a member of the TSP Members Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content that's available nowhere else. You'll get great discounts, including the Sawtooth and Backwoods Home Magazine, many other great places. If you're buying stuff in the self-sufficiency preparedness world, homesteading world, your membership will pay for itself. So it's a good deal on that front as well, and you'll support the work we're doing. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to Learn. Learn more. If you're military, law enforcement, or Peace Corps, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, all active duty or prior service to any of those professions, if you email me before you join with service discount in the subject line, I'll give you a discount code to save even more money on an already great product. Uh, next up today, let's talk about the year that was the episode. The episode is 1418, so the year is 1418. I got an interesting quick one for you today. There's actually three really cool ones up today. One is the Age of Exploration and Henry the Navigator. A Hundred Years' War, Paris is captured by the French. Paris is captured by the French. And the Imitation of Christ. You can read the Imitation of Christ or the Hundred Years' War segments if you want to at tspwiki.com. There'll be a link in the show notes as always. I'm going to read the Age of Exploration, Henry the Navigator. In 1418, Portugal has a problem. Imports from India and China are expensive because Portugal's at the end of the very long shipping route. This has forced them to find a route around Africa. But as ships move closer to the equator, the North Star drops below the horizon and navigation, such as it is, goes out the window. Henry, the Prince of Portugal, has become fascinated with the problems of navigation, has set up an observatory to collect astronomical data. He will send out ships to explore down the coast of Africa, trying to solve the problems of navigation below the equator. The project will earn him the nickname Henry the Navigator. 
The, the ancient historian Herdonius writes that Africa has been circumnavigated, so Henry, the navigator, knows it can be done. But it's the early 1400s. It's like launching rockets at the moon. Due to his efforts, the Madrid Islands will be rediscovered and fortified wine will be born. We call that port, by the way. Madrid wine, by 1444, the Portuguese will reach Darkor in West Africa, but Henry will die before ships circumnavigate Africa and find the Indians, the ones found in India. My little take on this is I think we probably look at this and go, what, really? You got a ship, it can sail in the ocean, you got Africa, you got a coastline, follow it, when you get to the end, make a left, follow it back up, you'll find what's on the other side. It's not that simple. It's not that simple. You can't sail inside a land like that over those distances using wind and sails and stay that way the whole time and be practical. The other thing is, you don't know where you're going. And I think the big thing is, navigating in the southern hemisphere is a lot more difficult than navigating in the northern hemisphere. You see, that northern star is always there and doesn't move. So I call it the North Star. Um, we have a lot of uh, astronomical features in the southern sky, but there's no South Pole star. There's no motionless star. Everything moves. So to use stellar navigation in the southern hemisphere, you have to be aware of the movement or the apparent movement of the astrological features. You have to take into account what day it is, what time it is, etc. There's no constant So it made exploration of the Southern Hemisphere more complicated than one would think, even in the year 1418. Anyway, with that, I want to move on, get into today's show, but I got a new segment for you that I'm going to be doing once a week called the Bob Wells Plant of the Week. I buy most of my plants from Bob Wells Nursery. I know a lot of you guys are like really like to learn about new plants, so I, I said to Bob, could you guys give me, in 30 seconds or less, one cool plant a week for the next year? And they said they would, and they got three of them to me. And so the first one will be today. This will probably generally be on Tuesday shows, though. Today's plant of the week from Bob Wells is a Lappin's cherry. It's a highly adaptable tree from zone 5 to zone 9. The tree is one of the few truly self-fruitful options in cherries. Makes it ideal for the backyard grower with limited space. It only requires four to 500 chilling hours. Those aren't frost hours, chilling hours, guys. It also is one of the few cherry trees that can be planted in full sun, even in the in zone 9, and handle the extreme summer heat of the south. Yet it's cold hardy enough to handle the extreme cold in zone 5. Lappin's cherry, you guys with small yards, it's something really to look at if you want cherries in your design. I have Lappin's coming here and being installed this fall. Anyway, if you want to know more about Bob Wells or that tree, there's links in today's show notes, and now let's get into it. Um... This is a hard show for me to do, and it's not really a show that I wanted to do because, you know, if I'm advising you what gun to buy, in the end, I know you're going to make your own decision, and if you buy the gun that I recommend, you're going to buy a good gun. If I advise you what tree to plant, in the end, you're going to make your own decision, and if you plant the tree I recommend, you're going to plant a good tree. If I advise you on how to cook something, eh, you're going to cook it the way you want to or the way I said. And if you do it the way I said, you're going to have a good experience. If I talk about something you can store, long-term storage food, and you store that thing, it'll last, and I know it's going to be okay. There's a lot of things in life that I can make a recommendation and be very comfortable with my recommendation. 
what you should do with your life and your career and your money is a much different animal. I can't make concrete recommendations, but I've been getting a lot of emails lately, some from new listeners that I don't know your name yet until I've seen your emails, and some from uh, long-time listeners that I know personally that I've shaken hands and bre broke bread and drank beer with. And the theme that seems to be coming in right now, and I mean at a higher frequency than normal, very high, which I don't know if it has to do with some of the shows I've done lately that's jarred some people awake. I don't know if it has to do with kids going back to school, because I know some of these folks have kids, and you have the kids all summer long, you're dealing with them, you finally oh, get them out of the house, and you go, you know, I'm not happy with the way things are, I want to change, you have time to think about it. I'm not sure what it is, but I'm getting a ton of emails that are basically, I hate my job. I don't like what I'm doing. I don't feel like I'm paid enough. I don't have enough money. I don't want to be where I am, and I don't know where to go next. I like or I love doing X, Y, or Z. Sometimes the person knows that. Sometimes they don't know what they really like. They look at their career, and they say, I could get a better job in the same field, but I don't know that I want to do that. I don't really want to be through that again. I'm working for a company that only gives a shit about profit, And that may or may not be a problem. I Sometimes I wonder, because when people say that, it's like, well, as a business person, I am very concerned with profit. If I don't make a profit, my company goes out of business, and all my employees lose their jobs. But there is the people and the companies that care about profit to the exclusion of the mission of the company, and it doesn't matter how they make the money as long as they make the money. They don't care what they do to people, and so there's people in that trap. So whenever I hear that, I don't know if they're really in that kind of company or they just don't understand business, and maybe they've moved into a level of management that they've never been in before, and they're becoming privy to things they never knew. And now they're kind of like they took the wrong pill in the Matrix and they know the truth and they don't want to know anymore. They want to go back in, but you really can't go back in because now you know. Um, I don't know if it's they have the, the shitty management company or they're in the I took the wrong pill and now I know what I don't want to know thing. Because there are things in business that when you are a young person in a company working for the company, you think, oh, these people suck. They just do this to make me miserable. They don't work really hard like I do, etc. And when you move into the positions of the people that you used to hate, you end up hating yourself, and you learn that those people were doing what they had to do for, for a variety of reasons. Um, so I never know when I'm asked that, like, what position that person's in. Then here's the other part of it. Usually it comes along with, well, what career do you think I should go into? Well, I don't know you, so I don't know. Or, you know, what careers are good careers to be in right now? I, I don't think that really is the way to look at it. I, I really don't. I think that's a very, very bad way to look at it. It's probably how you got where you are now. Most people, if you have any kind of an education that led up to your career, It sat back and thought, what's a good career field? What pays well? What has reasonable employment opportunities? It seems like a rational argument, but then you end up in a job that you don't like, and then the next time you're thinking about a new career or a new move, you ask the same question that got you where you started. It's almost like, well, you know, I followed the North Star, and I ended up at the North Pole, and I don't like it here, so maybe I should follow the North Star again, tying back into our you know history segment. Um That point now should be a guide, like the North Star is in navigation. You don't follow it. You keep it relative to your position so that you know the, the course you're taking. So if, if, that, if that question got you to the wrong place before, um, unless you take a new bearing on it, it's likely to get you to the wrong place again. Does that make sense? 
So I get people in this state, and they just want me to tell them what they should do. And that's scary as shit. Because if I say something, somebody like, ah, I don't know, this particular field is kind of hot right now, and they go out and take a job, and it screws their life up, I'm going to feel responsible whether I should feel responsible or not for it. I I do care about you guys. Sometimes I come off like a jerk and I yell at the microphone or whatever and get hard on some people once in a while. But in the end, I really care about you guys, and I don't want to do anything that harms anybody. If I hurt your feelings, tough shit. But if I actually hurt you, that's a problem. So I, I'm not sure how to answer these questions when they come in. So I have to take a approach of being very generic and general in my advice. For new listeners or listeners that have never heard a show like this before, before I go on, there's always, well, is this really survivalism and prepping? Uh-huh, yeah. Let me explain it to you this way. The reason most people get into prepping is fear. I mean, that's not the best reason, but it's the most common one. At some point in your life, you're kind of walking along doing your thing and, and happy-go-lucky, and, and some dose of reality kicks you in the nuts, right? Or ladies, kicks you in the ass, right? And you, 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 you're, you're like one minute, ah, it's all great. It makes me like, holy crap. Now, for different people, it's different things. You actually learn how the economy works, and you realize how ridiculous our economy is and, and, and how deeply in debt the country is and how there's no hope to ever repay the debt, and there's only one place for the value of our money to go, which is down. So then you freak out about your money. Or you see uh, something like a Hurricane Rita or a Hurricane Katrina or a Hurricane Sandy on television, or you see something like the recent riots in Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, or you hear about a disease like Ebola in Africa. One way or another, in the end what happens is you realize everything isn't just perfect and super-duper and happy-go-lucky, and that someday something could come along and screw up your life. And what people worry about is their ability to house themselves, feed themselves, and their income, their money, their savings, their wealth, their homes, and their happiness. Those are all the things that drive prepping. If you didn't give a shit about that, you wouldn't care about prepping. You wouldn't care. It, it's, I want to protect what I have. I want to not lose everything that I have. And I want to be happy and healthy and safe. And I want my family that way too. Okay. If you're miserable now, how do you think you're going to do in the apocalypse? If you have no money now, do you think you're going to have money during the apocalypse? Right? And, and to put it to a different way, if... If you lose your home because you're in a job that you're miserable in and eventually it affects your, your performance to the point where they'll never fire me, but yeah, they did, and you lose your job and eventually you lose your home, does it matter that everybody else kept theirs and it's not an economic collapse for the country, just for you? It doesn't matter. You're still homeless. Being good at what you do, enjoying what you do, making a good living at what you do, and developing your career or your business so that there's always additional options is probably the most preparedness thing that you could be doing in the world today. And we sure as hell don't teach it in school, do we? I mean, most people, they have this meeting once or twice during their high school career with a guidance counselor that says, what do you want to do? Oh, here's the courses you should take. This is not career advice. This is not career planning. This is not an understanding of economics. This is, I mean, I could write a book talking about what you don't learn in high school about careers, business, and economics, and it would probably be everything that you should learn in school about careers, business, and economics. 
Because you don't learn Jack Diddley squat that's actually practical or matters. So I guess it falls to something like the Survival Podcast to, to try to bring that to you. But one way or another, you end up in a position at some point where you say to yourself, I don't like where I'm at. I hate my job. Maybe you're even in a business that you own or partially own. You just, I don't want to be in this business anymore. Um, or you, you're at a point where I've never really even got started yet. You know, I'm working as a waiter or pushing a lawnmower or whatever it is to get by. I don't even have a career. I don't know what to do. And you say to yourself, what, what would be the place where I could have a reasonable income? Something that would give me the things that I want. And I could be happy day to day. I could be happy by the fact that I'm getting up and going to work. And maybe you find something like TSP and go, this Jack guy seems pretty happy with what he does. He, he podcasts every day, and that's his business. And it, he could figure it out. Then maybe he could help me figure it out. And maybe I can, but in the end, I'm going to tell you, you got to figure it out for yourself. Um, don't think that when I was 25 years old, I thought, you know what? One day I'm going to be a podcaster. When I was 25 years old, I didn't know what a podcast was. I don't know if anybody had done an actual podcast yet when I was 25. That would have been well over 20 years ago at this point. No, it wouldn't. 18, something like that, whatever. But I didn't know. I can tell you at 25, I did not know what a podcast was. And I had no thoughts that I would be on radio or in broadcasting or anything like that. I was kicking ass in the sales industry and, and, and fighting really hard and working to earn uh, a six-figure salary by the time I was 26, I think, was when I first did that. And my base pay in that job was $24,000 a year. And I worked really hard in sales. And then I ended up finding other opportunities in sales that were even better, but that required travel. And I missed a lot of my son growing up. And there was a lot of unhappiness and happiness in the sales world for me. The sales world, one of my earliest mentors taught me, sales is one of the greatest things you can do. Because there'll be days that you can cut out of your office a little bit early and go pick your kid up from school, and no one else is able to do that and make the kind of income you can make. But there will also be days when you have to go to Florida or Virginia or Kentucky or West Texas and eat bad enchiladas for lunch while your kid's doing their thing, and you're not going to be able to be there when everybody else is because it's an after-hours thing. So... And you're going to have it, so you have this ebb and flow with your lifestyle. You're also going to have this ebb and flow with your with your successes. You're going to have this this huge success, and you're going to be sky high flying, making a bunch of money off it. And the next day, you're going to run into a roadblock and a failure that's really not that important, but it'll depress you. And you have to learn to deal with that. He was right, and that was sales. Eventually, it led me into a different path where I decided I wanted to go into marketing. I took a major pay cut. When I went from sales to marketing, I took a pay cut of $100,000 a year. You get that? That's the cut in pay. It wasn't easy to do, but I did it, and I worked my way back up to that level of income. And I still wasn't happy. So I went through sales, and I was good at it, but I wasn't happy. I went through marketing in a career space, and I still wasn't happy. And all the time along the way, I had little businesses of my own going online and doing things like that and having things for myself. And I was always reading and developing myself. So the overnight success of the Survival Podcast, if we don't even worry about the two years it took to get it off the ground as a full-time business, and just say that that two years is the overnight success, is actually 20 years of life experience in business, in the woods, uh, and in life, right? Uh, hunting, fishing, marketing, money, 
self-improvement. It took 20 years to become the person that was able to take that microphone and make this show. And even then, I didn't know exactly what I was making. But I can look back now and say, how did I always move forward? And then kind of give you that blueprint, and then maybe you can make it work for yourself too. I think the most important thing to do is to start with what's good about your current job, business, income. What, what's positive about it? You may find through this examination that whatever's making you miserable isn't about the company you work for or the people you work with. It may be your own attitude. I'm always leery with this, though, when I'm giving people this advice. Here's why. I can probably take anybody, as long as you're making enough income to really have a decent life, like to really pay your bills, or there's the potential to get there at your current job, and so you're not going to be stressed out over money. Because if you're going to be stressed out over money, you either have to change your lifestyle or your income. Those are your only two choices. Because uh, you're never going to be happy if you're stressed out over money, and it will only get worse over time. The stress and the debt will only get worse over time. And the hole you're in will only get worse every time, over time. And the chains of debt slavery and the chains of monetary servitude will only get worse over time. So if you're in that situation, I can't tell you what to do, but I'll tell you that you have one of two things you must do. You must fix the income equation or you must change the lifestyle equation. And you might want to do both. But that's where you're at. But if you're not there, if yes, I can pay the bills, yes, I can get rid of the debt that I have with this, Yes, I have a pretty nice place to live. Yes, my kids can do some stuff and not feel like they're in the poorhouse. Yes, I am financially okay at this position. And yes, there is a chance to do a little more. Then I could probably help you program yourself to be happy. And I'm scared as shit to do it for people. I want you to think about that. I could probably help you be happy where you're at and I'm afraid to do it for you. And here's why. It is very possible that something better is out there for you if you'll go out and find it, seek it, grab it by the ass, and take control of it. And being too happy in something that's not what you really want is the biggest thing I feel that prevents talented people from going out and getting what they want. So when I see a person that's unhappy that's in pain, my natural human instinct is, let me help you solve your pain. But yet I know that sometimes pain is necessary. When you sprain your ankle, and you have pain from the inflammation in your ankle, and you can't walk on it, you could take a painkiller, reduce the inflammation, and walk on it, but you're only going to aggravate the injury. The pain serves a purpose. Stop walking on your freaking ankle until the swelling goes down. It's your body saying, dude, rest this joint. You've screwed it up. I need your body, I need time to fix this. Okay, dude, chill, right? So pain often serves a purpose. The fact that when you touch something hot that burns your fingers, you'll feel pain or register pain, pull your hand away, serves a completely different purpose to make you withdraw, to make you move. Well, I think that many times the pain, the misery, the uncomfortableness in a life place is designed to make you do something about it. So, for instance, with my own son, we did a lot of things to help him with his life 
up to a point and to make his life comfortable up to a point. And then we did a little bit less and a little bit less. And eventually we got to a point, you know, he's in his 20s. You're like, you're on your own. Well, my car broke down. I don't have any money. You're going to have to figure that out. That doesn't mean I'll leave him sit on the side of the road. I won't get him off the side. But how he's going to pay for it, he's got to figure it out. Because if dad just pays for it, then what incentive is there to go beyond being a bartender? Right. So I think that if you're unhappy with your job, you kind of have to decide, what do I like about this? And do I want to make myself happy here? You have to ask yourself a question. If I could be happy in this position in my life and work to better it on the path that it's on, would I want to? And that has to start with an assessment of what's good about it. An honest assessment about what's good about it. Well, there's nothing good about it. Well, wait a minute. When you work, do they beat you with sticks? No. Are you sitting in a comfortable chair or standing in a comfortable workspace or whatever? You're relatively physically comfortable. Well, yeah, okay, well, then there's that. And on, on Friday or Monday or the 1st or 15th or whenever, and when they say they're going to pay you, do they pay you? Well, yeah, okay, so there's that. You get paid. And does that income sufficiently at least provide a roof over your head and food on your table so that you can eat and be relatively comfortable in your life? Yeah, okay, well, there's that, okay? Is there anybody there that you talk to that you like at all? Well, there's this one person, and he's kind of cool. Okay, so you have a friend in this, in this, so there's that. And it's amazing if you start making that list how many things you'll find you like about what you do. I am now going to tell you how to program yourself to be happy in your position. With the warning that you really got to want to do it, or one, it may not work, and two, it may work and not be best for you long term. Yeah, this is this is like me handing you a gun. If you point it at your head and pull the trigger, you will kill yourself. If you point it at another person and pull the trigger, you will kill them. If you do something stupid with it, even if you don't hurt anybody, you can end up arrested, or it can be the most powerful tool in your life. You have to decide how you how you want to use this tool now that I'm going to give it to you. You make that list, and you keep going over that list, and you refine it, and you find the 20 things you like the best about your job. And here's the magic trick. Wake up every morning, and as soon as you shit, shower, and shave, pull that list out and read it to yourself somewhere where no one's going to think you're crazy out loud so that you can hear it and read that list to yourself. At lunch... Take a moment to be peaceful and quiet and away from everybody. Pull out your list and then read it so that you hear it in your mind, but you're not out loud because you're probably surrounded by people. And then at night, before you go to bed, read that list. Do that for 30 days and you'll, find, you'll probably find yourself in love with your job, energized, and doing things to advance in your employment. Assuming that you're not in a dead-end position where you can't advance and, there's not, and it's actually a decent place to be. The risk is that you really should be doing something else, that you have the time or the talent or the knowledge or the potential to do something more, and now you're going to be comfortable in what you're doing, so you're not going to. Do you see, and that's, for a person like me, you know, a person like me that knows this, and I know it works, I don't want to be the person that prevents someone else from saying the hell with this and going out and taking a huge risk that pays off. I also don't want to be the person that inspires you falsely to do that and then you left a really great job behind and you really could have made something out of it and now you're broke. And I don't want to be responsible for either one. So all I can tell you is how these things work and then you have to, you have to, you know, 
do what's right for you. So the counterbalance to this is once you've actually defined 40 things that are good about your job, try for 40. You might be surprised that you can get to 40 and cut it down to the 20 best ones. And you have that as a plan and you set that aside and say, this might be what I do. Now I want you to actually come up with everything that sucks. I just want you to do what's good first. If you don't do what's good first, you'll never get to 40 things. You won't get to 10. You got to do the good first. Then tear it down. Rip it apart. Say everything that you hate about your job. And I want you to make those into like a, a list of two sides. And one is all the things that are really specific to your job. Okay? And then I want you to list all the things that are just specific to having employment. So I don't like that I have to be at work five days a week. Is one of the things I hate about I don't like to have to be at the office. There are some jobs where maybe you can telecommute or whatever, but you're moving, as you move toward telecommuting, contracting, things like that, you're moving toward business versus employment. So that goes on the other side of the list. If you really want to be more comfortable, you can make three. Specific to my job, somewhat specific to employment, absolutely specific to employment. So one would be, People tell me what to do. Well, that's an employment issue. If you're employed, I don't care if you're a contractor doing your work on the beach in Sri Lanka, someone's going to tell you what to do. Okay? So that would be clearly, that's just, that's a problem with being employed. Uh, my boss is a dick. Okay? That's specific to your job. My company doesn't pay any reasonable benefits. That is an employment issue, but it's also specific to your job. The, the, the commute to where I work sucks. That's specific to your job. Okay? Um, my company doesn't pay overtime. That's specific to your job. But many other things you're going to find you don't like. I have to be there every day. Um... The potential to advance is limited. That's an employment issue. Every job you ever take will have limited opportunity for advancement, some more so than others. So make the list of everything that's bad and kind of chop it up however you see fit into things that are, you know, every job is going to have these things. My job has these things. Most jobs are going to have some flavor of this. And, and kind of look at it and get an understanding of why you're unhappy with that. And, and now that you've done that, you've kind of given yourself an ability to evaluate your employment and say, is my solution making myself happy where I'm at and doing more with what I already have? Is my solution finding another job using the knowledge and skills that I already have? Or is my solution, I've got to find a way to work for myself because I hate working for somebody. That's my real problem. Doesn't mean you go do it tomorrow morning, but that might be your answer. You have to figure out what that answer is. The next, assuming you're going to make any kind of a change, whether it's with your career or even just with a side business or just with a hobby, what you really need to ask yourself is, what do you love to do? Don't focus on the thing the product focus on the activity and what i mean by that is when i asked myself this question time and time again here was the answer that i got 
I love to teach. And your guidance counselor would say, well, then get a degree in post-secondary education. Become a school teacher. And if you do the right things, you might be able to teach at a university and get tenure. And I would be freaking miserable. That's not what I meant. See, that's focusing on the thing. Right? So if you love to make cabinetry, well, what you really do is you love to work with wood. You love to use a saw and a tape measure and a square and finish wood, if that's what you really love to do. You love to work with your hands. Try to be as generic as possible about the activity that makes you happy. When are you at your happiest? When do you feel like, this is what I was meant to do? When do you feel like you're actually on the path that your destiny has in store for you? Again, I'm not the religious person that I know many of you you folks that listen to this show are. I have my own version of spirituality. I guess there is a generic term for it called deism. And I have my own choices within the deist philosophy that I follow. But I have a certain spiritual nature. I know some of you are deeply Christian or deeply Jewish. And I know some of you are deeply Muslim. Um, I know I have some pagans. And I know I have some agnostics and atheists. And I have people that say they're both an agnostic and an atheist, and we have to debate what one means and the other. I don't care. And it may be more difficult for the agnostic or the atheist to understand what I'm about to say than anybody else. Because I believe that we do have some level of a destiny. And there is a spiritual component to that. But you don't have to really... Believe that, I, I think, if you are an agnostic or an atheist, you can still understand this pathway that if you just look at the neural makeup of your mind and the physical capabilities of your body and your talents and the things that you naturally have, there's a place where those will be best engaged in, in not only being good, but being happy while being good. Because please don't make the most important mistake you can make about your life just because you're good at something doesn't mean it's right for you i was a very good corporate salesperson very good multi-million dollar producer in every position that i ever had multi-million dollar producer from the first position to the last position Negotiated deals from a couple thousand dollars to multiple million dollar deals. Got them closed and got them done. I was very, very good at it. I could get in to see people that nobody could get in to see. I could get programs started with people that no one could get a program started with. And I hated it. I liked the results, the money, the travel, and the ego boost. That's Jack Spirico. He's coming to see us. Where, where other people were like, get that guy out of here. He's a sales guy. It's like, Jack's going to come see us today. Like, that feels good when people feel that way about you. And I would get into these moments in sales where I would actually be happy. And I would say to myself, what's, what's, I, I don't like these people. I don't want to be here. I want to be home with my family. I don't like the assholes I work for because the people I work for were dicks. Especially the last job I had in sales. But I was happy. And I realized when I was happy, I'd go into 
an executive boardroom. And you're talking about doing a network installation and how we're going to test it and how it's going to be mapped out. And I realized that the people in that room all have suits and ties on. They're all very self-important. None of them actually understands the total picture. Half of them don't understand anything at all about it. They understand the money aspect of it. You've got a, a chief operations officer who doesn't know anything about technology. You got a technology guy that knows enough about technology to make his own life miserable because he's afraid everything's a security risk. Doesn't understand how that's mitigated, but at least he's got a grasp of the understanding. But most of the other people don't really understand anything. The most basic things about the product that I sell and how it works with the other products that are part of their solution. And no one will tell them they don't know what the hell they're, they're, they're talking about. And everybody just wants to make them happy, and everybody kisses their ass. And I'd walk in, and I'd realize this, and I'd say, let's talk about this solution. And, and, and without asking permission, I would just start teaching. And I would explain the whole system from one end to the other. And some clown that actually, like, like IT clown that actually knew all the things I was saying would start going, we know that, we know that. And one of the guys in his suits would go, hey, hold on, I want to hear from this guy. Shut up, sit down. I'll tell you when I want you to talk. I had people say things like that to the guys that actually knew what I was saying because they had never made it cut and dry simple because they want to protect their fiefdom. They want to be the, they, these people, they wanted to talk like everything was complicated and use the newest buzzwords and big words to make people think we, we got to have him because I don't know what the hell he's saying. So I would actually explain the whole solution and where my piece fit into it, all the other pieces fit into it. And I would take something that they've been listening to people bitch about for 20 days straight and give it to them in 20 minutes, and they'd actually understand it for the first time, and then I'd get the deal. And I was happy when I was doing that. It was teaching. Or we would do seminars, and I'd get in front of a group of people, and 20 different speakers would come up and talk about the TCIP this, and yada, yada, that. And I'd get up there, and I'd talk about cable testing, which is boring. And I'd explain things like near and far and crosstalk with analogies, like if you went to a football game, and there was a line of people, and the guy at the other end of the line was talking to you, how it would be hard to hear him. And how that was far end crosstalk. And the louder that the, the, the ambient noise got around it, the harder it would be to hear him. And you'd watch people's eyes go, Bam! I've been doing this shit for 15 years. I had no idea that's what we were, that's what's actually going on. And I was teaching. So I realized that it was the teaching. And it was when I was learning. When somebody else would get up and speak, that actually made me understand it. So I was a perpetual student, a perpetual teacher. I went into marketing because I wanted to get off the road. I wasn't really, but I was, but that gave me a chance to learn and to teach and to develop programs. I worked for a company called Cognigen. They're not around anymore. They were absorbed by a company called Tolaris. They had 200,000 agents. I ended up writing the training guide for those agents. When I was new to this, I didn't even have a job in it yet. I was doing it while I was selling. And in the end, I realized it was teaching, it was speaking that made me happy. So instead of focusing on the thing I'm going to teach about X or Y or Z, I, I realized I had to focus on teaching. And that meant I started teaching with whatever I did. My first marketing job, I was there one day. They gave me an intern. I sat that intern down. 
And I started teaching him high-level high business principles. He's running his own company today, by the way. And all of a sudden, that job, which was a huge pay cut, and the company felt they took a risk on me, the, the key players in that company heard these conversations and were like, wow, did we luck out. And that led to other opportunities that led eventually to me meeting Neil Franklin. We built companies together. But I was focusing on the teaching. And it led both to entrepreneurial and career-based opportunities. And that's what you have to do. You have to focus on the activity to the exclusion of the industry. Then find the things that let you do what you love. Find the product, so to speak, that matches that. I like If you love to draw, what can you draw that people pay for? What can you draw differently than anybody else does? What product can you attach, whether it's as an employee or an entrepreneur or a contractor, what, what product can you attach to the activity? And sometimes that just means trying a whole bunch of shit and seeing what floats. What gives you the joy and the success? But on the other hand, you have to be careful with that approach because it can be too much like some people go fishing. There's people that go fishing that never catch any fish. They have the right bait, they have the right boat, they have the right equipment, they're at the right places, they have the, they're out there for the right time, but they don't anchor the boat and freaking fish one place long enough to start getting bites, to work out what's the pattern going on and start catching fish. There's people that do this in business all the time. Some of the some really talented people I know have great successes and a lot of failures because they never give anything the opportunity to catch fire, and they, once in a while something catches fire while they're not paying attention, so that one works. But they never, like, they, you come up with a marketing strategy for their company with them, and next week they want to redo their website and change their marketing. We haven't even finished yet. Well, it's not working. We're not, we haven't actually even cast the lures in the water yet, and you want to move the boat because the fish aren't biting. And you have to be careful you're not doing that in your life. So you got to try a lot of stuff. But when you start to get some traction with something, you got to give it time. You know, I've worked with people that four months into it are like, man, I'm not making enough money yet. I'm like, you're making money? Well, yeah. Okay, well then, especially like an online business with no real overhead or cost of development? Seriously? Four months to profit and you're bitching? I don't care if you made a dollar. I didn't make a dime off of what I'm doing now for 18 months. It was 18 months to the launch of the MSB and the sponsorship program. And it was worth the, it was worth the effort. It was worth the wait. It, it, it was completely worth it. And there was, again, 20 years of life experience that led up to it. It was 21 years to make money from what I really loved. I made bits of money from bits of it until I found this one thing. So you got to make sure that when you start to get some traction, start developing it. Start developing deep into it. And then, as you're doing this, you have to identify, well, what the hell is keeping you from doing that right now? So, like, one of the great questions is, if, if, if I just walked over to your house and said, Hi, I'm Jack Spirico, and somebody just gave me a billion dollars. Didn't know it was coming. So I'm giving away $10 million to one person a year for the rest of my life. You won the lottery, here's a check for $10 million. 
by the way, I've paid your taxes on that $10 million. You actually got, you know, 16. So I put the tax, this is your money. It's free and clear. You have $10 million in your life right now. What would you do? What would you do with your life now? And let's, you know, okay, you're going to go buy a big piece of property or a big house or a nice car. You're going to take a trip to Europe, go to Australia, learn to scuba dive, whatever it is. You're going to do all this kind of recreational shit. Eventually, you're going to have to figure out something to do with your life. You've got your new place. You've got your piece of land. You've got your car. You got all the shit you could ever want. You still got seven million bucks in the bank. You're paying yourself a salary of a half a million bucks a year, and you ain't gonna run out of money doing that. And uh, you just you just have whatever you want. What are you gonna do? What would you do to make your life have meaning? That's a good way to find out what you love and what your passions are and what you want to be doing. And so that question can help you with the other questions. And once you know that, then you have to say to yourself, why can't I do that now? I have a buddy. This is what he said to me. I'd just be happy to live in the country again. I wouldn't care if I was living in a trailer and I barely had any money. I wouldn't care, but I just need to, to get to a point where I have enough money saved up where I can live that way. And I'm like, dude, there's like 50 million broke rednecks living that way right now. They don't have any money. And his face just went blank. Like, oh. And the thing is, he doesn't really mean what he's saying. But, but it got him, it got him to think about that. Wait, so what I'm saying is the lifestyle I want doesn't actually require money. It requires choices. And I'm really comfortable with those choices. So the obstacle to him was economic due to the choices that would be necessary to do it in the current situation that he's in. And honestly, with him, it was also partly, you know, being married. This guy, If this guy wasn't married, he would have done what he wanted to do a long time ago. But he loves his wife and he wants to be with her. These are all parts of the puzzle, all parts of the decision-making process. But you have to identify every obstacle that's preventing you from doing what you want to do. And then you have to be very careful because half of them, I'm telling you, when you're done with your list, are going to be bullshit excuses or blaming somebody else. So once you get them all written down, everyone you find that's a bullshit excuse, I want you to write a big BS right over it to remind yourself that you're bullshitting yourself. Don't cross it out. I want you to be able to read it. Just a BS. I'm bullshitting myself. This is not my problem. Then you'll find a very narrow group of things that'll be your problem. One may be that you need capital. You can almost always figure out how to raise capital, one way or another. You can almost always solve the money problem. Another will probably be the knowledge set. I don't have the skills and knowledge necessary to actually do this. You can almost always solve that with education. And those are going to be your two big ones. The next ones are going to be things like risk aversion. To do this requires a cut and pay. It requires going out on my own. It requires whatever, and that's a risk. And you have to decide, is what you want sufficient to warrant the risk? How bad is the risk? And then ask, how do I mitigate the risk? What can I do so that failure is an option? See, I, I find it so preposterous. And I did it at one point in my life where I decided I was going on my own before I was really ready to fully go on my own. The failure is not an option. Well, that's stupid. That's stupid. I, I know it sounds good. It might make an inspirational poster or something like that with a ship sailing in between two icebergs, but there could be a freaking piece of that iceberg sticking up in between there 
There could be damn well be failure, and you better have a lifeboat, and failure better be an option. Now, that doesn't mean you plan to fail, but you better think about redundancies and exit strategies, and what do I do if this doesn't work? Going all in only makes sense if you're only using the chips on the table and you have a lot of other chips somewhere else. Don't go all in. You can go all in with commitment, but don't go all in with logistics. Have an exit strategy. Have a plan B. Have a way to back out. Have a redundancy plan where you can at least say, that's not working, I need to pay the bills for a while, I'm going to go do this and retool and figure it out. I did it several times in my life before I hit the home run. But de develop a list of the obstacles that are preventing you from doing what you want. And just develop, then develop a plan to leverage what you have to get what you need. I need more money. Well, I do have a job and it pays well. And if I restrict my lifestyle, I can save up money long enough to fund what I want to do. It could be that simple. And that means no eating out, living on rice and beans, whatever. It means whatever it means. But it might be that's it might be living in a way that's tough to do for a couple years. But boy, will you make the most of those two years as you plan what you're going to do and get yourself positioned because you'll know it's real. You won't fool yourself. See, the problem with me handing you the check, let's say not for $10 million, but let's say you say, I need $50,000 to build this business. Here's $50,000. If you didn't do anything for it, you're probably not going to actually take the, 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 the initiative that seriously. But if you had to work for it, buddy, you're going to take it seriously. You know what it took to generate that, to sacrifice for that. And I think what most people really need to understand is that I don't care if you do this as an employee or an entrepreneur or some kind of hybrid in between the two. It's really about personal development and confidence. You have to be really sure of yourself. You have to really believe in yourself. And that's so easily said and so difficult for most people to do. I, I, I've tried experiments with salespeople before where I've said you have a lack of personal confidence and they say, no, I don't. So I want you to stand up and say, my name is Joseph Smith and I don't give a shit if anybody likes it or not, but I want you to say it loud. I want you to shout it. Uh, somebody in the next room might hear you. I want you to just stand up right now and shout it. I'm Joseph Smith, and I don't give a damn what anybody thinks about that. Like that. Most people can't do it. Most people can't do it. If you can't say that, how confident in, in who and what you are are you? Now, confidence is not arrogance. arrogance. Arrogance is belief in oneself that is unfounded and is hindering of learning new things. Confidence is proper belief in your abilities and talents with a knowledge that you can always be better. I don't want you to be arrogant. I want you to be confident. If you can't do that, you're not confident in who you are. And it's going to be very difficult to really excel at anything. And then personal development is both emotional and technical. So there is a place for the motivational self improvement market but most of it's still bullshit but whatever works for you works for you but you, you you have to develop that piece of yourself 
the psycho spiritual component to your to your ethos, to who you are and what you are. But there's also a technical skill set. I really like to draw. Okay, we'll see what you draw. Yeah, better than I can do. But I don't see you making any money with that. So you have to develop that skill or tool that skill towards something that's not directly art related. If that makes sense. You, you, so you, you, you have to develop the technical capabilities. When I started doing this show, I was a natural teacher and a good speaker. I wasn't a great podcaster. I was a good podcast. I wasn't a great podcaster. I feel like I am now a great podcaster. I don't think I'm the best podcaster. I'm not going to call myself the pod father like that one guy does or anything like that. I, but I feel like I am a great podcaster. I'm great at what I do. Now, there's a lot of people that don't like to hear you say something like that. There's people right now going, he's pretty arrogant. No, 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 I'm confident. I can be better, and I don't always do my best. But in general, I do a damn good job developing, producing, and putting out this show. And most people can't say that. Not because it's not true, because they can't make themselves say that. Can you say, I am a great whatever you are? And it's about, again, the technical development of the skills required and the psycho-spiritual development of your mind where you believe that you're great at what you do. Now notice, I didn't say... If you just believe you are the greatest car salesman in the world, you will be the greatest car salesman in the world. That is the biggest pile of dog crap. And yet it often still works. And I'll tell you why. The person it works for actually is a great car salesman. They have all the technical skill. And the only thing they're lacking is the internal self-belief that they're good. So they go through some sort of mental conditioning that gives them the belief and they already have the technical capability. Got it? And that person will say, you know what? It worked. I went to the Joe Hokum, uh, Jagoff friggin' conference with that motivational guy with the teeth that looks like Lurch. I broke a board. I came home and I'm selling more cars than ever before in my life. It works. It doesn't work. It works for that piece. That guy had the technical skill set. Nine out of ten of the people that are going to those types of things don't have the technical skill set. They hear, follow your passion, all the things I'm telling you that are true, but that's they hear it to the exclusion of the technical development side of things. They really believe, I'm the greatest ever, and they suck at what they do. And belief and, and charisma and charm will only take you so far. Sooner or later, you got to produce. You know, we found that out in the stock market, didn't we, in like 1998, 1999, the dot-com boom. You could put out a really slick-looking prospectus. You could put out all kinds of crap. You could get tons of investors to show up and throw money at you. Day-trading moms to multi-billionaires didn't matter. And you could just have that stock price soaring. But sooner or later, the market looks at you and says, okay, you capitalized $100 million bucks. I'm looking at your website, five pages, doesn't do anything. What do you do? Uh, we don't know yet. And that happens every day in the lives of individuals. They sell themselves into a job. They sell themselves into an opportunity. They sell themselves into a career. And when somebody says, okay, let's talk about delivery, they can't deliver.
And there's a lot of people in management and companies that are those people. And they're, they're hanging on. They're constantly deferring to delivery and the excuses and the problems of somebody else. And they might be making you miserable. Or you might be one of them. There's another saying in business management. That sooner or later you screw up and promote every employee to their highest level of incompetence. What do I mean by that? <laughs> so, I got a guy working for me. And he's doing a good job, so I give him a promotion. He does a good job in that, so I give him another promotion. Every time I promote him, he gets greater responsibilities and the ability to have other people do more things for him. He also learns the company, he learns the systems, he learns the procedures, he learns the politics that work. Eventually, because I believe that he's doing a good job, and he is, I will promote him into a position that he's really not capable of doing well in. But at that point, he will have reached a point where he can bullshit his way around problems, defer his responsibilities to other people, and squeak by, and make his department sort of function well, And he will learn to get a little bit better at what he's doing and be a little bit more productive. But at the same time, he will learn how to spread out his responsibilities to the people underneath him. And sooner or later, he will reach a stasis. And when he reaches that stasis of being able to tread water and not have me on his back every day, and not have me coming down there and yelling at him every day, and it looks like he's doing his job reasonably well, he will cease being promotable. He will no longer excel. He'll look adequate. And I don't promote the adequate. I pro promote the excellent. So I will have promoted him into his highest level of incompetence, where he does not do the best for the company anymore, and he doesn't do the best for himself anymore, and he and his department will all be miserable because of this. Where if I had left him one rung lower on the ladder... That's where he was really good at what he did. And sometimes the worst thing you can do to a person is promote them. And a lot of times there's people that know this and turn down promotions and people look down their nose at that person. That may be the smartest person. The smartest person you know. The person that goes, no, not going on there. Not right for me. They're not ambitious. Well... I don't know. I've seen people move into management positions and make less money than they did when they were in the field. In sales and marketing, I see that all the time. So is it really less ambitious if you don't want to make less money? But in the end, if you're happy with your income and you're basically happy with your job, why would you take another job, even for the same employer, just for a little bit more money if it destroys all the things that you were good at and all the things that made you happy? Many times people find themselves promoted out of happiness. And if that's you, you're probably not the kind of person that's going to found and run a company of your own. Because you have to be everything from chief bottle washer to chief executive officer when you run your own company, especially in the beginning. You'll find if you set up a company that your biggest challenge is and will always be human beings. And I don't mean your customers. I mean your employees and your contractors, etc., The best company you can run is one where you are the company. There's some limitations there to how far you can go and what have you, but you will never have to deal with somebody's bitching, complaining, whining, etc., or their incompetence. If you're incompetent, you know, and you don't have anybody to defer it to because it's just you. That's why I like running a business that's just me.
even though it makes it a little harder to take vacations. All right. Now, the best business, honestly, from a technical aspect, is one that's made up of people that can be built to a point where it will run without you. And you could be a true owner, and if you sold your business, you'd make a profit. Or if you went away and came back, your business would be worth more than when you left. That's a successful business. It's a lot of work, though. And you have to find the right people to do the parts of it that you're not good at. So as you're devising what kind of business you want, you have to make a decision. It's often easier to develop a business where the plan is to eventually have 50 employees than to develop a business where the plan is to eventually have five. One idiot in a business with five people is 20% of your workforce. One idiot in a business with 50 people is 2% of your workforce. And the other 49 will be going, there's the idiot, there's the idiot, there's the idiot. And you'll go, that's the idiot, he's got to go, I'm going to replace him. As you go higher in body count, you end up with the idiots protecting each other. So again, I, as you can tell, I'm not big on high personnel, high, high staff businesses. But they're great for you if you are. But again, the key is about confidence and personal development. And this is what you have to understand. It's not going to just happen. No one is going to give it to you. And luck is only going to be what you make of it. There, the, the biggest reason people stay where they are in life is the, the, the words are things like, well, when things pick up, when things get better, when business picks up. It's, business is not going to pick up. Business is not going to get better. You're going to have to make it get better. You're going to have to develop it. Your life is not going to just get better. Nothing is going to happen unless you make it happen. You, your, your kids are not going to grow up into well... Uh, responsible, well-mannered adults unless you take control and help them do it, right? That's parenting. Well, you have to parent your own life. You have to command your own life. If you don't take control of your life, it's going to stay the way it is or get worse, and it's probably going to get worse. So whether it's a better career or whether it's leaving for a new career or whether it's creating a business or trying some sort of multi pronged hybrid approach or whatever it's going to be you have to do it do you understand that you have to I, I I know I'm repeating myself but God that is the that is the key is it not you have to do it there are so many people waiting for something to happen waiting for a, an email to come that so and so was looking to hire someone and heard you're in the market even though you weren't or, or, or something like that it it's not how it works you have to be seeking you have to be claiming and you have to be doing. And you also have to understand something about if you go the entrepreneurial route. Those who create reap the greatest rewards and fall the hardest. Everybody looks at someone that creates something and says, I want to do that. And they have no idea that the creator probably created 20 other things that fell on their ass first. And fell time and time again. Not like learning to ride a bike and falling down and skinning your knee. Like we're learning to ride a bike on a tightrope 20 feet in the air. And when you fall, you fall 20 feet to the ground, a bike lands on top of you, and then that bar that you use for balance comes down and hits you in the head. And then you got to get your ass up and climb, drag the bike and the pole back up there while people laugh at you for falling and, and fall again. And then do it again and again and again. And again, and when you ride across to the goal, ah, 
That's easy for him to do. That's creation. That's what it is to be a creator. That's how people will look at you. That's easy for him. You can't worry about what people think. You got to do it, but you got to understand that the fall hurts. The risk is real. Taking a pay cut of a hundred grand a year is something people would say. You know what, Jack? I think, I, I, I think you need to maybe go see a psychologist and see if there's something wrong with you. That 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 was the kind of advice I got when I talked to one of my friends who had been in sales his whole life and I had worked with. He said, I, I think there's something wrong. He says, you're, you're in your early 30s. It's a bit early for a midlife crisis, but you've always been ahead of the curve. Maybe this is coming early for you. I, I don't think this makes sense. Why would you do this? Can you afford to do this? And when I said yes, that 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 was even worse. Like the guy got mad because he couldn't afford to do it. So he was pissed that someone else actually could afford to do it. Like how can you have a kid and a wife and a house and cars and, and, and you can you can afford to do this? That's what he says. How? Well, we paid off all our debt because I knew I wanted to do something different. You don't have any debt? And he was mad. And as we said, he said, I, th- I think you need to go see a counselor or something. I mean, this is not a rational decision for a guy like you to make. What's, what, what, what is it going to cost your family? And it's the same person that would look at you today and go, nah, he had it easy. The same person that laughed at you when you drug the bicycle and the pole 20 feet in the air, put it on the wobbly wire, and tried to learn to ride the bike across it. They told you you needed your head examined for doing it, but laughed when you fell. It's the same person. It's worth it. But you got to accept the hard knocks that come with it if you want to be a creator. If you want to build a business, it doesn't happen overnight. You're going to constantly doubt yourself, and you're going to have to fight through it. And when you get to the other end, people are going to look at you and go, well, it was easy for him, easy for her. And I'll tell you the secret, though. It'll bother you some while you're doing it when people say things like, are you sure you want to do this, etc.? Express doubt about it. When you're done... Not really done, but when you've reached what you know is success, when you're living better than those people, and they say something like, oh, it was easy for you, you won't give a shit. It won't bother you. And you'll never listen to their excuses again. And here's the funny thing. It's at the point that everybody else's excuses start to sound like bullshit that you no longer seem to have any of your own. You, you, when you, you find yourself saying, well, I'd be able to get this. Oh, no, shut up. No, that's not how that works. How do I get this done? <laughs> that's the key, guys. That's the key. I think that the best choice is building something of your own. But it's not right for everybody. If you're not the person that will climb up the pole with the bike and get hit in the head with it and fall down and break your leg and be okay with that and get back up there with a cast on and still keep doing it, then it's not right for you. And and, and I don't want anybody to take this the wrong way, but flat out, as entrepreneurs, we need people that want to work for us. We can't do it all ourselves. So we need some people to be employees. You're a necessary person if you're the kind of person who wants to be an employee. 
But I, I think the other thing that people have to do here as I get toward the end of today's show is, is it's not all about money. It's not all about a number. It's about what the money buys. And for a lot of people, I think they would be better off if they had a lifestyle that required less, if they had a lifestyle that required 50% less, and they were making 25% less, they might be much happier. There's so many things that people could be doing. I'm telling you right now, a person that's just good with their hands and wants to just be a handyman can come up with work. A few business cards, start talking to people, let people know, hey, I do all of these things, put a little website together that explains what you do. And Because there's things I need done all the time. And I've got a guy who's the son of my next-door neighbor. And when we moved in here and I found out that he was that guy, I was overjoyed. I'm like, I don't have to find one now. There's a million guys like me out there. We know. I, I even know how to do most of the things I get him to do. I don't have time. I'm running multiple companies. I don't have time to put two windows in a shed. I just don't have the time to do it. When I look at, okay, uh, I can buy the windows for 65 bucks, and it'll take me about two hours to frame them out and get them in there, and this guy will come over for another 50 bucks and do it. It'll be done right. I don't have to do anything, and I can spend that time producing my show. I'm like... Call him. Call John get him over here. Tell him to put the windows in. Because it just makes sense. If that's the kind of stuff you like to do, you could be that guy. You know what my kid's doing right now? He's driving my old pickup truck around with a net and a hose and a bunch of pool chemicals. And he's cleaning above-ground pools. Because apparently most pool companies don't like to clean above-ground pools for whatever reason. And we found a guy to clean our pool because I don't clean my own pool. I don't want to. I have a pool to float my ass in it. I work hard for it. I want somebody else to take care of it for me. The guy that we found said, I got more business than I can handle. My wife talked to him. He talked to my son. My son rode with him a few times. And he said, I'll tell the guys that I get my referrals from, if they're from outside of my area, to give them to you. So my son is now finally building something of his own, and he's building a, a, a and you can take a look at his website, it's dfwcleanpool.com. He's building a business in a niche like that. Now, does he love cleaning pools? No, but you know what? He likes it a hell of a lot better than he likes li listening to some manager bitch about how well he cleaned up the bar at 2 o'clock in the morning. And there's actually, a, I mean, I think there's money in it. If Frankly, For me, if I was broke right now, I'd be doing a hell of a lot more pulls than he's doing right now. I'd be hitting this thing hard, a lot harder than he's doing. He's got to find figure out if this is really right for him or not. He's putting toe in the water. But I look at that and I go, I can make 700 bucks a week doing that. In a month, I would be making 700 bucks a week doing that profit. Most of it cash. You guys figure out what that means for yourself. Right? But does that mean I think you should go out and do what my kid's doing? No, I think you should do whatever you want to do. But there's, there, there are physical trades out there that are just waiting to be made into businesses. One of the things I looked at doing when I was just trying to figure out what do I want to do, and I realized I don't, I like to teach. I don't like to be outside sweating all the time unless I'm doing something for myself. But I went and I stained my deck, I stained my fence, and I went, this ain't hard. And if I actually got the equipment that's most suited to do this, I could knock out fences like that. I could do decks a little bit slower. I could get really good at this. There's plenty of people with fences all over this place that need to be stained. No one's actually selling it. I could probably make $100,000 a year staining fences in this place. 
and that, that opportunity is still there. And boy, could you could you transition into that if you have a job already, just starting out doing Saturdays. You know, just doing Saturdays until you until you got enough of a of a of a book of business kind of built up and referrals going to take a week off and see if you can do it for a week. And is that what you should do? No, you should do what you want to do. But there are so many things like that out there. The 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 gutters that don't get leaves in them. Every house with gutters that's not I mean that's that's an opportunity. Do you, does that mean you'll be successful if you do it? No, but it means that the opportunities there. There's so many opportunities that are not capital intensive. And that's my big piece of advice to you. If you guys are going to start a business and you've never started a business before, don't start a capital intensive business. Don't start a heavily employee-dependent business. Do something you can do on your own. You won't let yourself down. You will not let yourself down. When uh, Whenever I hear somebody that's starting up a new podcast, and they say, well, we're taping on Thursday, I think, oh, dear God. I, when I, As soon as they say we, I, 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 oh, dear God. Now, if you're, uh, if you're like my buddy Brian Black at ITS is doing a podcast and they're doing it for fun. And it's a bunch of people that are together anyway, you know, often and they're doing this thing called ridiculous dialogue. And it's just, they're just talking about random crap and they're having fun. And they're talking about old movies and different dates and concepts and just ridiculous BS. That's fine. But he's got a business. He's got a very, very successful business. I'd say ITS Tactical is one of the true success stories that follows the model that I teach of building a business. And he's even built it where he's got some employees and what have you. So that's just an, an aside thing. When you're trying to make a podcast really part of your business and build a success on it, and you say, we are taping, that means that whether or not a podcast gets done Thursday depends on more than just you. I don't care if it's just you talking, if you've got an audio engineer or some kind of, somebody's doing your editing, learn how to do it. It doesn't take much. You want to do a podcast? Learn how to record, learn how to edit, learn how to do the basic uploads, learn how to take, to get your, your, your feed from your blog that you put your podcast on in iTunes and all the other places and just do it. And then all of a sudden it doesn't matter if Tom is available on Thursday at six o'clock. Or if you're available at 6 o'clock on Thursday, it doesn't matter because you can do it anytime you are available. That's how I built this. So try to do things that are not really dependent on others and not really capital intensive, if, especially if you're, if you're not just doing it. right? If you're going to buy a franchise or an existing business and just step into it, that's one thing. But if you're going to take and build something parallel to a job, and transition into it, it can't depend on anybody else. Because no one's going to give a shit the way you are. And there's not going to be much money in the beginning. So that means you can't afford to pay anybody jack shit. And you're going to have a vision they're not going to have, so they're not going to do work the way you're going to do work. They're not going to care the way that you care. You have to, to, to For a business to handle employees, it has to have a certain level of success built into it already where you can have the person that only cares 80% and that person's good enough. In the beginning, the person has to care 100 180%. Ridiculous level of care. That's why you got to do what you love, what you're passionate about. It doesn't mean that you have to do 
exactly the product that you're passionate about, but the things that actually are necessary to make the product marketable need to be what you're passionate about. You know, a cabinet maker can probably do a lot of things that don't directly involve a cabinet if that's not the niche that's available. Oh, cabinet making is probably a pretty good niche still. There's not a lot of people actually still doing it that do it custom for themselves. It's rare. It's hard to find. And the people with the big money are looking for it if you're really good. But it doesn't mean that's what it has to be. It could be whatever you want. But, I mean, this is the best I can do. And I know what people want is, well, give me 10 industries that are really good to go into or consider right now. I don't know because I don't care. I don't care what industry is going to be hot. When I got into preparedness, it wasn't hot. I had people, he's just riding the, the preparedness wave. When I got into this shit in 2008, there were no TV shows about this. There were no podcasts about this. There were a couple blogs. There was one consistent blog, survivalblog.com. And really in this niche. And then there was survival.com, which was Ron Hood's thing. Karen Hood's still running that. But it wasn't really this side of things. It was just wilderness skills, really, is where it all focused. You know, and then there were a few prepper boards on places like Backwoods Home and stuff like that. But it wasn't hot. There was no wave. That wave had come and crashed into the rocks in Y2K. Everybody went, there's nothing here. I, I remember at the very beginning of this show, Dr. Prepper, James Talmadge Stevens, who's written some pretty interesting books, sent me a copy of um, his books. Several copies of all his books. And um, in the one book, it saw why the guy made so much money. He wrote the book and he sold the book, but he charged companies to be featured in the book. So the book was like a yellow pages with a bunch of inserts. And there was all of these companies selling to the Y2K crowd. This was the version of his book that he you know, released in the, in the mid to late 90s leading up to Y2K. And I remember what really struck me. I started looking at all the companies that were featured in that book. And you could tell they were sizable companies doing a significant amount of business just for the graphics they had put together and for what they were selling. Eight out of ten were not in business in 2008. 80% had gone out of business because all they were doing was selling to the wave. So I don't care what industry is, is hot. Now, if you're going to go into careers, I mean, medicine's a good career to be in. As long as you're not a doctor... The doctors are going to be the ones that ain't going to make crap unless you go work for an insurance company, which is probably not what you want to be a doctor for. But there's doctors right now. That's what they're doing. They're, they're closing their general practices and going to work for an insurance company. But a radiologist is going to have a pretty good prospect of a career for the next 20, 30 years, if that's what you really want to do. But I don't care about the industry. I care about the individual. The individual is what makes something successful. You know, when, when Brian put together ITS, for example, the best way I could describe ITS Tactical is the modern version of SWAT magazine that covers a lot more and does everything better. Okay? That's what, that's what ITS is to me. And if you go back to 2009, when Brian first put up the first ITS blog and started the blog and said that's the plan to outdo SWAT magazine you know to outdo like SWAT and Soldier of Fortune combined 
in an online way. People would say, that's not going to work. Those guys already have websites. Nobody even reads them. And there's the success. You can look at the success today, and again, the people that weren't getting in Brian's way at 3 o'clock in the morning when he was getting up early, drinking a coffee, and going to get things done for the day, the people that weren't there when he made a hard decision to stop taking design clients and go full-time before he was really ready, all those people say, ah, well, look, it, he's he got in early or some other bullshit. It's not how it works. doesn't matter if the industry's hot. doesn't matter what you want to build a business in. Or what career path you want to take. As long as anybody cares about it, there's a market for it. And let me finish with the, the big thing that screws people up. They get an idea for a business. And they find a lot of people are already doing it. And they go, oh, there's a lot of people doing this already. I might, I shouldn't do it. <laughs> do you know why it's funny? Some of you know what's coming next. Because then a the person comes up with a new idea. And they look around and they can't find anybody doing it. And they say, well, if nobody's doing this, there must not be a market for it. So they talk themselves out of every opportunity based on there's too many people doing it or not enough. And you know what you say to that person? What would be the right number of people doing it for you to feel like you should do it too? Two? Three? Five? Seven? Zero? What is the perfect number that tells you that you've made the right choice for yourself. They don't know. It's one of those things that when you write your list of obstacles, you end up getting a big red Sharpie and put B-S over it. making sure you can still read what's underneath the B and the S. B-S. It's an excuse for not taking the shot. There's so many opportunities out there. If you can do, if you're a machinist, just in the gun industry, there's a hundred accessories that you could be custom making tomorrow that exist for guns that nobody can get anywhere else. And all you need is the dimensions and specs to be able to make them. Somebody really needs to make a great, easy, immediately bolt-on rear peep sight for the NEF H&R handy rifle I talked about yesterday. Somebody needs to do that. Somebody just needs to make it and say, like, this is made for this rifle. And they need to make it so that it's adjustable. And you need to make something where you can just pop that front sight on, screw on a new front sight that goes with it, and have a set of sights designed for that rifle. Designed for that ocular distance of 22 inches. Actually, I guess it would be 22 inches. Maybe 25 inches. You... you That's it. But to see, the person says, well, I'm going to do that, and that's going to be my business now. You better do more than just, that's just a product. And that's why I say, well, there's, you know, Lyman makes some sites that do that. And, uh, no, none of them really do. None of them really are good for the purpose. They're all, this is the best thing to fit, kind of, sort of. Somebody needs to build that. Somebody needs to build Something that just bolts straight onto the handy rifle that lets you scout scope a, a handy rifle. So you can put that forward scope, that, that, that long eye relief scope, low power, forward on it. There's, there's a hundred guys that'll buy it. You can't make a living off a hundred guys, but you can develop a customer base off a hundred guys. That's, I'm giving you some ideas, but don't go just go do those ideas. I'm just saying the machinist has all of this potential.
all of this potential to do something. And there's a million guys with jobs, not a million guys, there might be a million, I don't know. Manufacturers not doing so well in America. There's a bunch of guys out there that are machinists at work that are like, I hate my job. And you say, well, why don't you do this? They say, well, I don't have equipment. It's just all, this, all these tools and shit are expensive. Okay, find a maker space near you. Do your fabrications on Saturdays and Sundays, after hours, in the morning, whenever you can. Well, they don't have all the equipment I need. Okay, use the equipment they have to make what you can for now to build a book of business so that you can get a customer base so that you can expand your business so eventually you can afford your shit and go out and make a business or stop wasting my time. And stop wasting your own time and go back to your metal lathe and make pots and pans or whatever the hell your company makes and get your wage slave check at the end of it and just be happy. Do the thing I started out with. Make the list of 20 things that are great about your job and read it to yourself every day and be happy there, but quit bullshitting about why you can't do something of your own. There's a reason you're not doing it. You're either afraid and you can solve that problem by mitigating your risk or it's not right for you, then accept that and find what does make you happy as an employee. But don't bullshit yourself. Just don't. And don't waste the time of other people whining about your problems because they can't fix them for you. And here's the truth. Most people don't want to fix your problems for you. They don't have time to fix your problems for you because they have their own problems. And I'm not saying, I'm not talking about you guys emailing me these questions when I'm saying that. Don't, don't see it that way. I'm just talking, that's the general thing. Guys sit around, drink beer, and bitch about, well, if I had this, I could. If I had that, I could. Do it. Do it or quit wasting your time, wasting your energy being upset about it. And figure out what does work for you. I could probably do a show and just sit down and, and not have any outline and just start spitting out ideas for businesses. I bet you I could, and maybe I'll do this one day. If you guys are interested, let me know. I don't know how practical it'll be, though. I don't know if it'll do anybody any good. I bet I could sit down and in one hour... Give 30 businesses that could be established with little to no capital on a part-time basis, with no prep. I think I'd come up with like four or five today without really even thinking that's what I was going to do. But if I just carry that idea around in my head for a week or two, I bet I could rapid fire in 60 minutes, 30 businesses, and give you the basics of how they would get done. Anybody want to call me on that? <laughs> Don't call me on it, man, because I'll do it. It's not the idea. It's, it's, the, it's, it's you finding what works for you. Anyway, I hope this helps you guys that are in these positions. If there's any point today where I sound like I'm yelling at you a little bit or anything, I'm just trying to jar you awake. I'm trying to make you understand. This is the reality. The opportunities in the world today are greater than they've ever been in the history of mankind. Don't believe the nostalgic bullshit about how there was a time when a man had an opportunity in 1955 in America and people could actually get a good job and bullshit. There's always been poor people, there's always been rich people, and there's always been parasites. And there always will be. And then there's the creators, the innovators, the dreamers. The doers. These people succeed through failure. That's If you're going to be a creator, you succeed through failure. You fail enough to figure out how not to do shit. And then you figure out how to do it right. And when you do it right, it's yours. You own it. You control it. You make your own decisions. For better or for worse. 
but you'll never go back. You'll never go back to being under somebody else's control again if you take that approach. And if you're going to be under somebody else's control, be under somebody's control that deserves your time, that deserves your talent, and respects and appreciates you for the value that you bring, and do the very best for them you can. That's the best advice I can give you. And with that, this has been Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Show you.